What the crisis has done is we don't have to tell people what supply chain management right. is. They know exactly what supply chain is. They have conversations with their family and friends right. and coworkers about supply chain. And it's actually adversely impacting companies. Oh, yeah. So now you can't get the component parts or sub-assemblies that you need because they're missing something. And so they're missing a chip or they can't get the steel they need because... Uh, you know, it's all coming out of China, and China's having difficulties right. getting steel to port, or we get it across the Pacific, and then it sits in port for 90 days. 98, I think it was yesterday. 90, <laughs> I'm not checking, Who's keeping tabs, yeah. <laughs> So, all of a sudden, you are in a situation where you, uh, you're living supply chain. Right. Even though you're not supply chain. And sure. so, now, we don't have to educate mom and dad on what supply chain management is which right. it makes it easier for us to sell junior as as a career path as a career term. path because he can have a fruitful conversation right with mom and dad when he comes back and says i think i've figured out what i want to do in life. Yeah. the highly capable podcast by galtway industries is the premier podcast for first-hand accounts of the manufacturing and supply chain spaces told by highly capable accomplished and proficient people Exploring all types of personalities and industries, our goal is to highlight the people who have risen to the top of their space and try to identify what sets them apart. If you have any questions, nominations, or suggestions, please reach out to us on the Highly Capable Podcast page on LinkedIn or at podcast at galtwayindustries.com. Welcome back to another episode of the Highly Capable Podcast, coming to you from Houston in the Fletcher Azul Tequila Studio at the Upright Digital Office. Um, it's been a while, it's been a minute, Keith, since we sat down, I think, maybe one or two. You got it. Um, but welcome back, thanks for, thanks for uh, coming on again and helping me out. Um, today is a, is a special guest. You know, we, in the Highly Capable Podcast, we've always had, you know, people actually, their day-to-day -day job is, is focusing on a supply chain right. or, or a series of procurement strategies. We, we have somebody pretty cool here today also. Now, right. I, you know Mr. Vic. Yep. I'm going to let you do the introduction. Yeah, Dr. Vic Wayhan. So he's a uh, – you know, one of the things that's very interesting is the evolution of supply chain professionalism and academia around supply chain professionals. And uh, Vic is a fantastic leader here in the local community in Houston, um, you know, representing the University of Houston, and, and brings a wealth of knowledge, you know, not only of the academic side, but how he's been able to weave it into – uh, what's happening in the real world specifically i mean obviously more oil and gas uh, in manufacturing here locally uh in in you know, in the houston area but then because of the global network and and uh that we run in um has got a great uh, great series of stories and context as well and it's interesting that that this is who we brought in because our last guest brian was we we had a conversation about how supply chain and procurement became kind of a not a catch-all bucket but not a forefront conversation right. mm -hmm. as far as a career or even essential to the business itself. that's right and now like i was saying my neighbor talks to me about supply chain i mean right. it's, it's the forefront <laughs> of everybody's mind so having a somebody that teaches it right is, is going to be handy so yeah and, and watching it evolve over time so Absolutely. welcome vic welcome great to be here thank you gentlemen for yeah. this opportunity do I, I think i should call you dr wayhan no i go by vic <laughs> okay. my friends call me vic and uh vic it is. even my vic. students because i've got such a good relationship with them uh call me by my last name just wayhan yeah so um 
I'm going to say Vic. Again, it feels weird, <laughs> but I think we'll get through it over the next hour. Um, l- let's start with your current position, and then we're going to hit the reverse really hard and go back to the beginning and, and let you kind of walk us through how you got to this seat. So I'm a supply chain management professor, uh, University of Houston, C.T. Bauer College of Business, and I've been uh, at the university since 96. Uh, six years of that was working on my Ph.D., went away for another six years to another Texas institution, and then came back in 2008 to rebuild the supply chain program. Another institution not to be named? Not to be named. <laughs> little Harry Potter, huh? <laughs> slight, slight professional digression. We don't need to go through those things. No problem, no problem. So, uh, excellent. Well, again, thanks for coming. Um, how did you get to be Dr. Vic? I had to... Well, my my undergrad degree was in supply chain management from Bowling Green State University, which is another highly ranked supply chain program. They're typically in the Gartner top 25. And actually, it was one of the first uh, supply chain undergrad programs in the United States. And uh, Chan Han was the the chair of that uh, department, and he founded it uh, and... uh, really built it into an outstanding program. So my undergrad degree was in supply chain management and uh, I had a, actually a double major supply chain and then um, sourcing procurement. And so I had those two competency areas, uh, leveraged the uh, sourcing procurement in the chemical industry, went to work for a major chemical company and uh, Fostory, Ohio, hmm. uh, exciting place to... Sounds uh, gripping. It sounds yes. exciting. <laughs> the Vegas of Ohio. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, it was really exciting. Yeah, it was a uh, one-horse town, and uh, I was newly married, and uh, so uh, my bride was even more excited about the one-horse town. <laughs> Are you guys from here? And, and Well, I, I, I'll i get to that because that's how we ended up down here. Is my, uh, I'm an oil brat, okay. and so... Uh, my dad was a petroleum engineer out of the University of Oklahoma, and as is typical in the oil patch, particularly back then, uh, we were very transitory. So his uh, first job was with uh, Amico, which ultimately became part of BP. So we, uh, we headed to uh, Montana, then to Wyoming, then to Colorado, then to New Mexico, then back to Oklahoma, back to Colorado. So uh, by the time we get back to Colorado, I'm in high school now, and uh, he transitions from the Rocky Mountain Division, domestic division of Amico to the international. So he gets transferred to Chicago, Illinois. So my last two years of high school were in Wheaton, Illinois, which is a Mm -hmm. suburb of uh, Chicago, Chicago, uh, very suburban and... uh, and then spent a year at the University of Illinois, very large institution. Uh, I met my future wife at high school, or high school sweethearts, and so uh, she wouldn't. She was a year behind me. I wasn't excited about University of Illinois, so we wanted to have a smaller, more intimate mm-hmm. college experience. And Bowling Green State University had been recommended by some family friends. We went out to visit, fell in love. And as they say, the rest is history. So uh, we went to Bowling Green, and uh, she went year-round to catch up with me. We cool. were married a week before we graduated. 
I was in a fraternity. She was in a sorority, so we just had the big fraternity sorority party for wedding. But we wanted to make sure everyone didn't leave, so we had, that's why we had to have the, the wedding ceremony before graduation. And then I started working at uh, uh, the chemical company. It was Union Carbide, which is now part of the Dow. Yep. Yep, Dow Group Empire, and uh, and uh, so I was there for almost two years. Uh, my dad and uh, younger siblings, dad uh, became an expat, headed to Cairo, Egypt, and so uh, my siblings, the younger siblings, were in Cairo, Egypt, and my brother and I were at Bowling Green State University together, and so. Uh, one thing nice about the oil industry, they're they're very generous with uh, supporting their expats, particularly with kids that are at college. And so once a year, got a chance to fly out. So we got a chance to fly to uh, Cairo, Egypt twice. And nice. we, our family has uh, even, you know, decades later, tell stories at holidays about uh, our overseas adventures nice. and sometimes misadventures so <laughs> it was it, yeah. yeah right yeah, yeah those those <laughs> the, those are the funny ones typically are there what were you thinking you know yeah. those kind of yeah but uh and then uh, dad came back to houston texas and uh went to work uh he left amico and went to work for anadarko and so uh he's they lived in the champions area and so he he would call me and say you know how's the temperature up there in ohio and i said well it's minus 12 and and he would say yeah it's about uh 83 84 we're out by the pool just kind of yeah. relaxing <laughs> just just twist the knife in, twist yeah. the knife <laughs> so he he worked on us for about uh, a year or so and then we finally said mm, tired of shoveling snow and you know those lake effects coming out yep. of Canada and across the Great Lakes, and then it hammers Ohio and Indiana like nobody's business. So we decided to head south. You said bye bye to Union Carbide. You said goodbye to Union Carbide. Uh, you, you'll find my life is always about timing. Most of the time, mistiming. <laughs> uh, so I, I get down to uh, Houston in and 83 and we're all good already, times are coming yeah exactly right <laughs> we're right good dad says i yeah. thanks for trusting oils, me son oils yeah. never gonna Just go humming. down this is a great time yeah, have a chicken my, in the pot my, for everything. yeah my dad he <laughs> sold it really well you yeah. know this is a great industry to be in you know chemicals fine but you know nothing like the oil and gas industry and so uh went to work for a uh, a uh, export uh, company that uh, would buy uh, oil field equipment here in the United States and then work with the freight forwarders to get it to overseas, primarily Middle East. And uh, so started to, to learn the industry from a supply chain perspective and uh, figure out how challenging that can be. Right. Uh, and starting to learn the integrated nature of supply chain. Supply chain, as you would intimated is uh, has evolved right and uh, when I was in school as an undergrad it was very disjointed it was silo effect you were you were in the 
the buy function, or in many cases you were in that make function. It, the emphasis was on Toyota production system, and so you were a manufacturing guy. You weren't a sourcing guy. And then you were a logistics guy, and so it was very fragmented. And it wasn't really until 2000 or so that we started to formalize its supply chain. It's an integrated whole, and, and people started to say it needs to be end-to-end. -end. Right. And so, uh, but I, in, in, the, in the 80s, I was learning, uh, starting to see these pieces, you know, if, if you're not communicating, coordinating, right. someone's going to drop the ball, and then hell breaks loose. <laughs> but uh, So you, you were watching this, or you actually had a, you had a job? Down here in Houston, or? I had a job in Houston, yeah. and and so I'm I'm seeing that I'm buying stuff here, but if we don't coordinate with the logistics people, maybe it doesn't show up on time, and then we got people that need it, and so so you dropped into real time, real time. Yeah. All of a sudden, uh, you know, I came out with when I was with Union Carbide, I was supporting a local plant, right. And so that's a little bit different than I've got people out in the field that are needing this equipment, mm -hmm. and it's got to get there by a certain period of time, Otherwise or we're things down. Yep. you're going to shut things down, and now there might be liquidated damages and all kinds right. of issues. And so, um, but as you guys kind of chuckled, uh, one thing nice about the '80s is that we had two downturns, not one. Fun. Twice the fun, the, twice the fun. Double the fun. That's right. Double the fun. And so in the early 80s, we had a downturn. And so all of a sudden, people weren't buying equipment. And that's that, that was my first uh, foray into uh, businesses not having any business. Right. And, uh, and so I uh, went to work for another energy-related uh, company and... Uh, and that one was just later down in the progression of those that uh, didn't do so well. So uh, we were in Houston for about four or five years. I'm now married. I have uh, two kids, and Mama's starting to say, oil and gas. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we need to look back at Union Carbide. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Turns out things change well, a lot. Ohio, Ohio, Ohio sounds <laughs> and all, sweet all, right now. So all of a sudden, uh, you know, she's she's working, and uh, she's working downtown. She's working in at what the time was the uh, well, it was Bank of America. It was uh, you know the big brown kind of gothic looking building mm -hmm. downtown, and so. Uh, she knows that I'd like to talk, and she says, well, have you thought about, instead of being on the buying end, being on the selling end? Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do Coming it. From the, coming <laughs> from the, the resident sales guy. Yeah, so, uh, so I uh, talked to uh, some individuals in the financial industry, and, uh, you know, they, of course, they, they lay it on pretty thick and, you know, potentials and all that kind of stuff and then i tell her and of course she, her eyes light up and that's See, what i'm talking sales about guys. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah sales, sales guys, guys selling sales guys yeah. <laughs> yeah and so uh i went to um oppenheimer well i was at uh uh b of a 
and got licensed with B of A and then uh, transitioned to true investment banking with Oppenheimer and Company out of a little boutique investment yep. banking firm out of, uh, out of New York and then um, went to work for Shearson Lehman Hutton which was the largest investment banking firm. So now we get to the, the end of the uh, 80s and- So you left the industry altogether. That's it, I'm, le I'm gonna leave the industry and I'm, I'm going to I'm banking I'm finance. Go. I'm gonna go, I gotta go to something that, that doesn't have it. these ups yeah. and downs, ups and downs. Little did I know <laughs> that in 1988, <laughs> we would have a financial crisis. Yeah. The stock market would drop 20, approximately 25%. Uh, My book of business got burnt so I, things are going really nicely, and just when I'm about to achieve fame and fortune, yeah. <laughs> start all over again. Yeah, all of a sudden clients don't have any money, right. and that typically is bad for business in that industry, mm. and uh, and they're not happy with you, and so they blame you, and uh, and but uh, you know the oil industry had a hard time there, and so uh, you know Houston in particular had a, a diff difficult time uh, housing market was was in trouble and so uh, you know we we had to regroup again and and actually it was at Oppenheimer where we had the the financial crisis and uh, and then went to Shearson Lehman Hutton to try to rebuild the book of business so uh, in in 1992 to make a long story short uh, I've had uh, 12 years of experience, approximately half of it supply chain, half of it uh, in investment banking generally. And, uh, you know, I'm starting, now I have a wife and three kids. I have uh, all girls. I have my own sorority. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, they're growing up and, 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 and I'm feeling like, man, I'm, I've lost my way. And in a sense, I did. You were saying, don't go the financial route. Yeah. Stick yeah. to supply chain. Yeah. It'll. Yeah. It might look bad right now. It'll come back. It'll come back. It'll come back. And uh, so I didn't learn that lesson. I've learned it now. You're right. But, uh, but uh, I also started to, uh, you know, I I do like to communicate. I love. I started to find out that I love to teach, and so I got asked to teach an adult. Bible study at a very large church in Houston and built that into a very successful uh, Sunday school class, more than 100 in the Sunday school class. And so I started to figure out, you know, I, I have a gift of teaching and I love to communicate. Maybe I should, maybe I'm not destined for industry. Maybe I'm destined to help industry. Right. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in my 30s and, you know, I haven't gotten where I needed to be. So uh, I decide I'm gonna go uh, get the degrees I need to be in higher academia. And so uh, my wife being, uh, being who she is said, okay, you wanna go to grad school? I pick where. It's like I put up enough. Yeah, hey, said, they, you, I finally you, get a say so in this explanation. Well, so my my she wife knows when to wife was uh, was <laughs> born her. in mm. Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So she's a northern girl. Yeah. Met her in Chicago. I drug her down here to Houston, <laughs> kicking and screaming. Mm. So now she's saying, you know, I gave you a decade or plus. So 
we so we ended up going to Virginia. So uh, I wanted to make sure I I knew how to teach. You know, I, I had some giftedness in that area, but there's you know pedagogy is a whole there's a science and art part of it. So I got a master's degree in educational leadership. So I spent two years and a lot of money learning how to teach how learn how students learn, what's the, what's the best way to help them to master material, all that kind of stuff. And then uh, spent another two years getting an MBA. And so now I've got four years of grad education. And technically you could teach with an MBA. You just have to have one degree higher than uh, the individual you're teaching. teaching. Yep. And so, uh, but you know, four years in grad school is wasn't enough I decided no the best schools once you have a terminal degree so I applied to three PhD programs out in the Virginia North Carolina area including the University of North Carolina and three in Texas including the University of Houston and you know my wife is saying Mm, I don't like I don't like this. Yeah, I don't like I've already odds. been on this merry-go-round uh, once. I'm not sure I like 50% this. 50% I'm going to Texas. See <laughs> <laughs> so you did that. And <laughs> so uh, so all three of the Texas schools say thumbs up. All the East Coast schools say thumbs down. Like, so honey, I, I tried. So yeah, exactly. honey, I, I tried. Was valiant really effort shooting for the East Coast. There, I was. Yeah. I, I understand that's what you wanted, uh, you know. And so I had to have a very difficult conversation with my wife and three daughters that were headed back to Texas. And how old were your daughters at this time? They, let's see, the oldest is middle school, and Ooh. the other two are in elementary school. It's tough, tough they love time to, leaving school. They, 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 yeah. Yeah. Young children, they they thrive on change like that. Yeah, no, they, love, they want no. to leave all their friends. Especially females. Not yeah. at all. Yeah. No, Holy they, smokes. They, uh, wow. And so we, we, we headed back to Houston, Texas. So that was uh, bittersweet. It was bitter for my wife, sweet, sweet for, for me. <laughs> Go thaw out. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's that. And so uh, I start in 96 in the PhD program in supply chain management. So was it a PhD in supply chain at that point? Or well, was it at that point, at that point, I'm using, I'm, I'm reflecting back sure. from the perspective of we're now a supply chain management yep. program. But no, technically, it was a production operation. Production it's operations. still yeah. production. We haven't gotten the fact. Right. It's an integrated whole. Yep. We've not uh, made that leap yet. No, very make, yep. very make, very manufacturing oriented, and uh, and so I, I go from '96 to uh, 2002. PhD program is supposed to be four years. Wayhan can't do anything the easy way. <laughs> um, well, part of it is my oldest is now uh, wanting to go to college, and so she's. Um, you know, destined for Texas A&M University, and she says, Dad, you and I cannot be in college at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> this like, why not we go to the same party? I kind of love it. Yeah, yeah exactly. this, we'll have this, the same friends. this does we'll not. What's sorority? We'll be, I'll be at the mix. We'll, we'll go to the game. Yeah. No, and so uh, I think she was more concerned about my ability to pay for a college education. Uh, and so, you know, they uh, don't pay Ph.D. students very well. well. Right, right. So I did, in, uh, in 2000, I did what is known as ABD. It's all but dissertation. So 
I've completed all my classes. I've completed all my qualifying exams, which are always very exciting because you've got two years of academic work and, uh, and then they have three PhDs that prepare questions for you. And you get an eight-hour session. We're going to put you in. You're going to have a computer, and you're going to have these questions, and you're going to have to answer these questions, and we're going to evaluate them. And it's either thumbs up or thumbs down. It's binary. It is it. You either do well, and we well say we you, you will we'll let you do wow. your work on your dissertation, or nope, that isn't going to get it. We're going to give you another master's degree in adios. Wow. So a little pressure. Ouch. So holy wow. smokes, door closes. Talk about door closes. Right? It's it's it it hits you on the backside on the way out. Wow. Yikes. Yeah, that's and why I'm not a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's interesting is I started with four, and we ended up with one that made it. Wow. So it's uh, it's not for the faint at heart, no. let's put it that way. And I do not advise having a wife and three kids at the time. <laughs> that is just not wise. You're, you're, you know, you're probably already starting to wonder, man, was this a wise choice to bring Weihan Man? He's going through all these poor decisions he's made <laughs> along the way. But it's, it's, it's the pinnacle of where you landed, yeah. right? It's I mean, where, you're in the where right it lands. And yeah. so, when the journey uh, is half the excitement. Yeah, so, I, muscle. so I went to the institution that will, will remain unnamed. Uh, for And so I'm now a full-time professor, yep. but I'm working on my dissertation part-time, which yeah. I do not advise either. Mm. Another, <clears throat> but it does pay well. well. <laughs> so that was... So she got to go to college, and, and Dad covered the, the cost. And, uh, and uh, so I finished up the dissertation in 2002, uh, walked across, across the stage, and so uh, go back to that institution, teach for another four years. Here's where the story gets good. It's I almost don't know. It's been divine, pretty enjoyable so yeah, far. I'm, I'm fine. Okay, divine providence. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to a DSI conference in Phoenix, Arizona. So we're going to uh, the uh, uh, the airport. So we're going to the Bush Continental Airport. I don't know if it was Bush Continental at that time, but uh, uh, it's a red eye special that had a, it's it's a plane that's so narrow that on one side they just have one row of seats. Oh yeah. Yep. And the other side is two. Yep. That's how narrow. You can almost slap each other yeah. across the yeah. aisles. It's, Unenjoyable flight. Yeah, it's one of those. She's a big guy. Yeah, it's one of those up and downs typically. And so I'm headed out to Phoenix, and I'm on the single row. I'm in seat two, and all of a sudden, uh, Bashir Kumawala, who was my dissertation chair, okay, is going to the exact same conference. He shows up, and he just happens to have seat three. He's right behind me. And so we, you know, we're on the tarmac and we're catching up and whatnot. And he basically says, you know, I uh, got some good news. I just got uh, promoted to the department chair of the DIS department. DIS department houses both supply chain and MIS okay. at the University of Houston, C.T. Bauer College of Business. So I'm now uh, the department chair. And... Uh, I'm looking for another candidate. I lost one of my supply chain professors. So uh, I was wondering whether you might be interested in that, but you'll have to note that uh, one of the requirements is you need to help me to rebuild the program. And what year is this? This is 2008. Oh, wait, got it. So this is spring of 2008. Got it. And so uh, 
before we wheels were up, we had already started talking about how we're going to do this. And uh, so already had a verbal offer and already starting to put the, the pieces of nice. and, and what was critical because I have industry experience the key to building a world-class program starts with you have to have jobs at the end of that program right if students are going to come in if they know it's like a pipeline if, yeah. if you don't build the pipeline and it has prosperity on the end of it it's hard, right. to, hard to get them in it's pretty hard sell yep. mm -hmm. and so um so i hit the ground running in the summer he had me teach us Bashir had Dr. Kumawal had me teach a summer class just to, to get warmed up, and uh, but I started knocking on a lot of doors. Um, I uh, went out to see Greg Shoemaker at uh, HP. He was the CPO at at HP, and I'd had already had some some conversations with uh, he and his right hand person Coretta Strickland. Um, I was at an event at Melcher Hall, which is one of the mm -hmm. business buildings. Uh, Mark McDaniel happened to be there. He was a good coog, but he was School of Engineering. But the time was uh, responsible for source and procurement at, at Halliburton. Told him I've come back. I, I start in the fall to rebuild our supply chain program. We only have 49 supply chain majors. And, and these, these initial engagements are to do what? You're trying to engage them for internship opportunities for sponsorship for light at the end of the tunnel like you said you can't have a flange there it's kind of right. how do we make sure these people land well what are these initial conversations all, look like? all of the above and how was it received well what was interesting is is mark was a good coog right. and so he basically said i'll help you to rebuild the program but i can tell you already You've got uh, you got to change this from a very make-oriented production operations management program to a end-to-end -end supply chain program. In fact, you have zero buy classes. Okay, there is no sourcing procurement in your Wait, curriculum. Wait, so in the supply, I know it wasn't called supply chain, <clears throat> but you had no sourcing procurement i want to make sure i heard that right you heard that yeah. correct just it's all about ops management just straight up operations just straight how ops do we make widgets yeah officially so you, yeah and inventory management and forecasting it was just a pure that's a one-sided one-sided yeah. and uh and so mark obviously is in source and procurement so he basically says uh i'm going to help you build uh a couple of uh, sourcing procurement classes and so uh, uh, because my background was sourcing procurement you know he and I spoke the same language and so he and I worked on creating two classes um, our it's kind of our procurement class it's the P2P cycle the basics you know what's a purchase order right you know it's right. procurement 101 right how do we buy stuff how do we <laughs> yeah. buy stuff right. yep and then it's uh, amazing that that's actually really important too though right because how many people go from let's say you're you're a mechanical engineer or a chemical engineer and you land into a job 
you, inevitably, you've got to buy something to actually execute projects. So many people don't even have that baseline knowledge of what is a requisition? What does it look like to right. get approval? What does it look like? What does a purchase order actually mean? What are terms and conditions? So actually even starting there is a massive you know, step forward versus, oh, here's another textbook that tells you something, but when you get to the real world, it may or may not actually show you how to do your job. I guess it seems so natural now, now. that I've been doing it for right. a little bit. But yeah, I mean, I guess I can go back in time where PO, what, what yep. is that? But and now in sales, you're like, P.O., bring it on. I care about, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that is fascinating that they didn't they didn't take the other, you know, connect one or two more dots down right. the chain. Either. No, it was, it was straight out of the Toyota production system. They just presumed everything shows up yeah. mystically and magically. Fairies bring it in. And, and oh, fairies bring it in, and yeah. fairies take the finished product out, but the real pros are the ones putting it all together. Yeah. Yeah. And it was it was very biased towards the make functionality, and so Mark obviously uh, steeped in the source and procurement says we got to get the front end there, right. and so he worked tirelessly. He he in essence is the godfather of our program, and so he worked really hard with me to build uh, our procurement 101 class. It's it's SEM 4350. And then he said, the key though, is that you gotta build the strategic sourcing class. This is, this is his area of expertise. Right. And, uh, and so I'll help you build it. We will, uh, he was, he's very practical oriented. He's a practitioner. And so we've, he said, we'll do two things. We'll build the curriculum together and two, Halliburton will sponsor a case competition inside of that course. So they're learning source and procurement from a uh, theoretical perspective, but we're gonna give them an opportunity to demonstrate competency in front of real judges who do this for a living. Practitioners, true professionals. Oh, and Halliburton takes that to an art form. Absolutely. They love, love our students, but love to <laughs> and uh, they, it's you, you, it's baptism by fire, and but it's the best way to learn. It's right. a good way to build that pipeline too, because these are the people you might be interacting. Exactly, with. and so right. they loved uh, getting first uh, looks at some of the the talent, yep. and so so we went from nothing on the source and procurement end to now probably uh, at one point in time probably. 70 to 75% of the, the jobs were source and procurement. So our students were prepared to go into those positions, hit the ground running. Right. And what started as one case competition became, we had Halliburton would do the first half of the semester and then Technique FMC, Marcelo Alves and his team, and then LYB, Scott Campbell and his team would alternate every other semester. So in 4351, they'd have two case competitions. Then uh, Justin Everett at Siemens Energy did a case comp brought in a case competition for the 4350. Wait, did, what was who at Siemens? What Justin Everett? Everett. I know Justin. Oh yeah. Shout out to Justin. <laughs> Justin's a former student of mine. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. I'm going to reach out to him. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's funny. Yeah, I just saw him. A few yeah, months he's ago. done. He's he's been a superstar from day one and. Uh, so he's uh, he helped us Small to get world. get right. the uh, get the the newbies mm -hmm. 
some practical experience, so it wasn't just theoretical. You took an exam. You know, uh, remember that master's degree in educational leadership? Well, you know, one of the things they talk about is uh, learning models. And uh, Confucius called our traditional American educational model into question 2,500 years ago. He basically said, when I hear, I forget. When I see, I remember. Mm -hmm. But when I do, then I know. Okay? Then I understand. Right. Okay? And so, um, you know, you need all three of those, obviously. But there needs to be a progression that takes you to a point where you understand because you've actually done it. And that's where our relationship with industry was so critical. That was the best decision I ever made was to knock on doors and start talking to some people. Typically, I was very fortunate to be able to talk at the highest echelons. Uh, Phil Tajera, who was at Schlumberger, was a, a big part of that. And, uh, you know, Marcelo Alves, um, David Hammerley was CPO at uh, Bechtel. And so we had some early visionaries that recognized having a rock-solid supply chain program because back in that day, you kind of had Arizona State, Michigan State, and then the others were kind of nebulous as to whether they're actually supply chain or they really more... I think Arizona State, Michigan State were really the first to kind of move towards the end-to-end model. And even Michigan State was a little sketchy on that because they were in the auto industry. And so that's a shallow pool of candidates, though. It is. And that's why, you know, we still we're not producing enough supply chain majors for industry. And that's why you see a lot of those in supply chain do not have a degree in supply chain. Mm. They just have a degree in engineering is the number one typically and in other areas and they just kind of rotate into supply chain, but they really don't have the technical academic competency. And so you wonder why we have problems and maybe even today why we have supply chain in crisis and Mm -hmm. mentioned in the same sentence. Or at least it's weaker. For sure. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting, too, is if you think about just kind of what's going on in the world and call it 2008 to 2014, oil and gas is, exp- I mean, g- exploding in a good way. I mean, the, um, you know, 2008 oil prices, what, 140, 2008, 2000, or 2008, 10, you know, 100 to 140. I mean, we're seeing massive run-ups. You know, they haven't hired oil, you know, oil companies and service companies alike have not hired, you know, younger folks into their organization. So there is a dearth of people let alone people with this specific set of skills. So the timing was just about perfect. Perfect. So guess yeah. what? Remember those? <clears throat> we I come in in 2008, and uh, we've got 49 supply chain majors. Right. What I wasn't told at the time is that actually the, uh, the program was slated for destruction. The previous dean basically said, this is we're a large way. college of business. Right. We don't have resources that we allocate to programs that can only attract 49 students. Right. Mm. So I didn't know I was coming in, and if I didn't help him get the numbers up, it was probably going to be a one and done. Right. Uh, so uh, 
still there. It's well, still there, say, yeah. yeah. So I was, I, I, was, I, I was highly motivated, but right. not motivated out of fear, but out of a passion for supply chain and wanting to build this program into world-class. And, and, and to your point, again, I mean, there was a, there was a void, there was a need. The, you know, the professional community here in town had a real need. Those people have gone on, I'm sure, to reach out to many other parts of the world and, and other industries as well. Absolutely. Because the, uh, you know, it's such a great starting point and the confluence of academic um, call it books and, and what you learn in a classroom against you know uh, practical application in your, uh, you know, w whether you're talking about the P2P side, the sourcing side, or ultimately the case study side, really gets these kids to a point where they can show up on day one and be proficient. They can actually start adding value, if nothing else, having real professional conversations absolutely versus, they talk the talk i mean let's be honest when i came out of undergrad i could barely tie my shoes i still yeah. struggle on a daily basis we're all still winging it out right yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and my wife will tell you i'm still not that bright <laughs> but that being said it, it's you know a lot of getting these kids ready for true practical application is the secret sauce because all too often you have folks that come out of a come out of any university any school within a university and they're just they're not ready to do real work yeah they can absolutely you know follow a recipe, you know, in terms of, you know, studying, committing to committing to success, what have you, but being able to provide value to an organization on day one is, is critical. Huge. Well, you, you mentioned that from 2008 to 2014, the oil and gas industry was riding a wave. Right. And we attached our, <clears throat> you know, sail to that, that ship, and uh, we went from 49. Right to more than 600 students across those six years. Wow, that's explosive. So we went, we went from yeah. a program slated for destruction to one of the largest undergrad supply chain programs in the country. That's impressive, that's awesome. So, but you know, I, I wish it was my story, but it's, it's not, it's, it's the industry story. And we also have some other heroes of the story too. Uh, you know, I mentioned we were a production operation and industry was saying, you know, so when I knocked on the door, you know, some of these folks, I'd, I'd ask the question, why are you not hiring supply chain majors from the University of Houston? And one thing I love about executives, they are not bashful. <laughs> they will shoot Un right from the truth. head. Unfiltered truth. And they basically s said, your students do not have the competencies we're looking for. They do not have the KSAs, right. knowledge, skills, and abilities. And I said, well, I'm new here, so what, can you give me one, what, 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 give me one competency that we lack? And it was like a drumbeat. Yep. Analytics, 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 you know, and, uh, and I'm going, wait, you know, this is supply chain. Right. We're, we, I, you know, I'm about to start uh, the, the, the program, all, I'm a curriculum guy. I've got this uh, master's degree in educational leadership. I'll go through the curriculum and I'll show you where the students, we're just miscommunicating. We're, we're missing. Right. So I, I start going through the curriculum and visiting with the, the professors and all of a sudden I go, oh, blank. This is all lecture, lecture, lecture. Confucius says, when I hear, yeah. I what? Forget. I forget. forget There's no experiential learning. There is no analytics. Look. Zero analytics. Yep. And uh, and so I got to go back with hat in hand. And said, man, you're right. 
but I, well, I'm, I'm going to work. We'll close that ch- gap. We're going to close that gap. Fortunately, uh, some of the uh, the real heroes of the story are some of my colleagues. So uh, Michael Murray was a chemical engineer by training, 20 years of experience. He and I were in the Ph.D. program at the same time. He became our quant guru. He was an you know, engineer, so he, he really liked that part of uh, uh, the function. And so he built the first Excel class for us. In 2009, he built a second class, or a second Excel class that uh, brought in Solver and in time would bring in some other programs like Power BI nice. and, and those. Uh, so we had two Excel classes. Uh, his, and through his initiative, we became a part of the SAP University Alliance. So we ended up, he created a SAP class, so our students get a semester of SAP training. So in essence, they could do both. Yeah, practice. Right. They could right. go practice into the ER. Because they to go live in SAP or Oracle at some yep. point. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and what I've been told is that if you've taken this class, you should be able to go in an Oracle environment and pick it up very quickly. Right, they, they kind of design it to yeah. be cross-transfer. Yeah. Yeah. And so what ends up happening is that um, we have um, – two Excel classes, we have a um, SAP class, so now they can go into an ERP platform and upload the spend data. Mm-hmm. Yep. Of course, it's gonna come in hot, dirty, yep. and messy, and so they are taught how to clean data sets, and uh, so they get it clean and pristine because you can't analyze it until you clean it all up, and then, we'll then we're gonna import it well, we've imported it into Excel, and that's how we're mm-hmm. cleaning it up. And then once we've got a, a clean uh, data set, then we can start doing what we do best, which is to start slicing and dicing that data, pivot right. table it uh, based on the, the variables that are most interesting to you. And, uh, and so beat they, up on sales guys. Then beat up on <laughs> sales guys. Is that a class? Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, no, because we teach them, actually, that those sales guys – uh, represent firms that are a part of your supply chain. And if it's an integrated whole, right. they are critically important to your performance. Yep. In fact, I tell them because, you know, going back, and you know, uh, when I was in high school, I, my dad came to me, it was a few weeks before graduation, you know, son, we need to think about what it is you want to do with your life. And I said, uh, Dad, I want to be a football coach. I was a football player there in, in Wheaton, Illinois, three-sport athlete. You know, I loved teaching, yep. I think, and wanted to teach football. And he's, he said, hell no. <laughs> and I said, well, why not? And he says, well, you're, I'd be paying for an education degree, and I don't have much respect for education degrees. And so uh, I'm going to give you two choices. <laughs> So you went and got a PhD and, in education. Well, just, just to tell him I told you. You're so. still in my thunder. <laughs> you're still money. in my thunder. Yeah. So it's uh, so I'm gonna give you two choices: engineering, which he was the engineer, mm-hmm. and that's what he wanted. So that was yep. first. You know, you have a, you, you have a, two choices: engineering, yeah. engineering, engineering, or business. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I'll take the latter. I'll take business. Yep. And uh, but the irony is the way life works out is I, uh, I end up in, I end up with getting an education degree. 
Right. So I, I got a master's degree in educational leadership. And, and then I end up as a supply chain management professor where I coach some of the brightest students on the planet to be amazing, mm -hmm. and they are. Right. You know, I play a very small role, but I'm there alongside kind of the guide on the side, but they're the ones that work really hard, and, you know, they're uh, amazingly gifted in right. what they do. And we've built a world-class program that prepares them to, as you were saying, hit the ground running right. on day one. And, and actually, we've built what we call a three-pillar program that I think has allowed us to become a world-class program. In fact, uh, we uh, just got good news from Gartner uh, a few weeks back that uh, we have finally moved into the top 10 of supply chain programs. So In the nation. Okay in the nation congratulations so That's 2014 we weren't in the gartner rankings 2000 sound like 2008 you were just about defunct yeah so, I mean, talk about a run we, we so, had a so you, you you came from like like you said a defunct program essentially on the way out 600 alumni by 14 or something like that is 14 it? so now you're at least you know, we're getting on the radar on screen is yeah. one of their measures is size so you know, they're you know we're just outside the top twenty-five, but it's just our size, right? More than. But the 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 good news is is that again, supply chain is the hot topic. Right. right. You can't turn on the news without hearing something. Well, it is now. Everybody has yeah. a, the timing is perfect. What do you mean I can't get toilet paper? <laughs> yeah, we were talking about that <laughs> yeah. earlier. Everybody has a cable degree in yeah. supply chain these days. Yeah. Right? I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people that they've got it figured out. They know that we have you know there's container problems, right? So this is the, the Garden of Eden as far as supply chain information and education comes from, right? Like, have you seen a, a surge in interest? Have you become the man of the hour now? Yeah, inbound well, I'm not the, request, I'm not yeah, the man of the hour, like? so let, right. let me make sure we... we Can you we, solve all the supply chain yet? <laughs> no, I can't solve them, but, you know, I mentioned uh, Michael Murray and then we, uh, Gordon Smith... Uh, uh, it teaches our supply chain strategy course. We added, uh, I think in 13 maybe, Dr. Bradley uh, Miller, who is our Lean Six Sigma guru. Uh, we but, added- well, I wanna hear like, you're watching all this happen as you've already had an established career in teaching people about the risks, the application, you know, the best practices. You're watching it crumble right in front of your eyes, the global supply chain, or at least maybe not crumble, but adapt or get wounded in certain areas. Like well, what's it, your what's your take there? Is it I, I, I told you so moment? Is it a teachable moment? You know, w what are we dealing with in the present from from everything you've seen? Well, what's interesting, the way you said that is we, we went to 600 and then oil prices did what? Yep. Fell into the door. Went yeah, straight on down. Yep. So we had tied our sales to oil and gas industry. So that was because we were growing so rapidly that we needed the jobs and we're in the oil capital of the world. The logical place to find them is right. there. Yep. And so uh, so we build it to this. We've crescendoed in 2014 and then all of a sudden. Yeah. But here's what ends up happening. We get on the Gartner rankings in 2016, it's 23. But it's because we built a very um, proficient program. So it wasn't just size that got us 
all the mm -hmm. points. It was now we had things in these other categories that in the aggregate helped us get on the, on the rankings. And so um, it was a bittersweet experience because, you know, we're, we're doing, yes, look at all the success. And then all of a sudden in about a year, we go from 600 to 300. And it, and it goes back to that principle I talked about. If there are no jobs at the end of the pipeline, are people gonna come into that pipeline? And the answer is, is no. So there was a lot of backslapping and congratulations and, and whatnot, but it was very sobering to be in a position where you have a world-class program but you can't place the students because you're dependent on one industry. Right. And that was that was my mistake. I I fully own that mistake. Um uh, you know, I'm an oil brat and I'm in the oil capital of the world and it just seemed yep. like that's the logical place to find most Myopic, of the jobs. Why not? Yeah. So, uh, we made a decision to um, branch out to other industries. Right. Okay. And so one of the things we did that was fortuitous is we began to really amp up the relationship with industry, okay? Because uh, they were there from the beginning, so we brought our early folks together in what we call uh, our executive council. Mm -hmm. And so in 2015, we formed the executive council. We had about uh, 10 or so people, some other luminaries on there. Maria Lindenberg was uh, CPO at Chevron at the time. And, uh, you know, next to Mark McDaniel was probably mm -hmm. the individual that had more impact in helping us with vision and mission and purpose and, and really getting us organized. But uh, that they focused on, yes, we can't all, we can't just be oil and gas. Right. And what's interesting now is we're back to 600 plus. But now if you go to our recruiting events, we've been very fortunate, you know, that's why I'm saying, you know, it's, it's a story I participated in, but I'm not the hero of the story. I've been, it's been unfortunate and fortunate. And right. so uh, Austin has blown up right. for those that sure. don't know. And so uh, we have, technology companies now that are coming in in a big way in a big way and uh and many of them are basically manufacturing sure. oriented companies and so uh, they're doing supply chain in many cases i'll give you you know a dear friend of mine thomas lyons at microsoft and uh you know microsoft's trying to figure out uh, you know how do we go from licensing software to making xboxes all the way up to data centers right and so uh, they, uh, you know, they have been, uh, um, you know, key cog in providing um, entree into the, the tech industry. You know, having a relationship with Microsoft always helps in that. Pro that. And, and so do you think that it has been the last, let's call it, you know, ever toilet paper is the best supply chain crunch It was the first history. one. First right? one. It hit, well, and, and it everybody's everybody. radar. Everybody yeah. knows oh, that, gets, it, right? that gets your attention. Yeah, man. I mean, <laughs> the, holy smokes. But that being said, I mean, it was the first conversational piece, right? And so do you believe that you, kind of your ramp up from three back to 600 and, and kind of where you're going as the program goes, 
is supply chain on people's radar because it's in the news so much? And is that driving some of your, your increase today? Or is it just, you know, things kind of getting back to normal? What, what, what do you think is happening with your Well, program? I think it's, it's probably a combination a of, both. of both. Okay. Uh, one of the problems we had is, in the early days is that we, we would sell the student on supply chain. And then they go back and they talk to mom and say, mom, I'm going to be a supply chain management major. And mom would shed a tear, like, yeah. oh, no, he's got into a cult, or he, <laughs> he talked to someone he shouldn't have talked to, right. and yeah. they, you know, he's going to be this great accountant, and now he wants to... Buy pencils. Yeah, yeah <laughs> buy pencils. pencils. <laughs> yeah. So uh, part of the, the difficulty is, is having parents understand the major. Right. Because oftentimes they're... And it's new, right? I mean, again, go back in time. Supply chain wasn't a... It, it was it when they were in college, yeah. what, what was what supply yeah. chain? What, is, yep. what, what are you talking yeah. about? Yeah, industrial distribution. Oh, I, I know what that means. Operations management. I know what that means. Supply chain is still relatively nebulous. This yeah. podcast would have been terrible five years ago. Oh, man. <laughs> it's right? only bad now. It's, yeah. it's really... It's only marginally uh, less than terrible. Yes. And it's all around toilet it's paper. It's going the right direction, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're trending so, towards okay. So... so is we don't have to tell people what supply chain management right. is. They know exactly what supply chain is. They have conversations with their family and friends right. and coworkers about supply chain. And it's actually adversely impacting companies. Oh yeah. So now you can't get the component parts or subassemblies that you need because they're missing something. And so they're missing a chip or they can't get the steel they need because, uh, you know, it's all coming out of China and China's having difficulties right. getting steel to port or we get it across the Pacific and then it sits in port for 90 days. 98, I think it was yesterday. 90. <laughs> I'm not checking. Who's keeping, who's yeah. keeping yeah. tabs yeah. up? Well, <laughs> well I, I was off by... Seven yeah. Right. yeah, I was approximating. Sorry yeah, about that. No, that's good. Uh, I'll stop approximating. I'm one of those weird guys that looks. But. Has to look. Right? Yeah. So uh, all of a sudden, uh, you are in a situation where you uh, you're living supply chain, right? Even though you're not supply chain, and sure. so now we don't have to educate mom and dad on what supply chain management is, which right. it makes it easier for us to sell junior as as a career path as a career term. path because he can have a fruitful conversation right with mom and dad when he comes back and says i think i've figured out what i want to do in life yeah. and then cool. the end of the pipe the company goes oh it would be nice to have an educated supply chain person right running our supply chain right exactly because, because and oh, by so the way, today, those they're jobs getting negatively impacted right i mean right. Yeah. they're investing in those those so those jobs are kind of the key. I, you know, I mentioned earlier about the three pillars. Mm. What you guys don't know is what those three pillars are, but right. you're, you're intimating. You, yep. you guys figure – you guys probably could have built it just like I could, so there's nothing <laughs> special about me. But uh, the first is we have to have some experiential learning, going right. back to Confucius. So we built the very first, Mark McDaniel built the first case competition in our strategic sourcing class in 2008. And we've been adding them to the, the source and procurement side. Now we've added them to uh, our make side and our ship side. And so now in just about every class, you're going to have to demonstrate competency in some practical. Right. It, it may be some case competition. It may be a simulation. 
where you got to run a supply chain against each other and there's financial mm -hmm. performance that determines who did it the best or you know we've got a lot of different ways where we can get them to that pinnacle which is that experiential learning right do one do one yep. and so um so having those inside of so that's where that industry uh, academic partnership was critical. So we have those, those case competitions and simulations. So that's one pillar. But we're in the fourth largest city in the United States. So uh, in 2008, I was introduced to a concept known as a co-op. Yep. Mm -hmm. So uh, Slumberjay came to me, uh, Phil DeGerry came to me and said, uh, you know, we'd like to introduce this to you because we're co-located with the University of Houston. So we could offer your students year-round opportunities to work where they don't have to delay their degree plan. So in the fall, they're going to work for us for 20 hours to 24 hours. They'll, we don't have any courses, supply chain courses in the, the morning. So uh, first class typically sta starts at one, so you can work from eight to 12 at Slumberjay and then head to U of H and then take your classes. So Monday through Thursday, four hours times four is mm -hmm. 16. We have no classes on Friday. You work a full day, you get 24 yep. hours. And uh, so Slumberjay launched that second pillar. Nice. And so now we have many of our best and brightest students are graduating with a year, year and a half, two years Under of real-world experience under, yep. underneath their, their, their belt where not only in the class are they getting the experience and sometimes having to go up against a Halliburton executive and mm -hmm. lock on horns on why mm -hmm. you believe we need to zig as opposed to zag. And, uh, and, but then you also have real-world experience where you're actually buying stuff mm -hmm. and you're actually having to make presentations to senior execs and have them, hmm, what, really was, that, was that English? You know? Right, yeah, yeah. It's like merging onto a freeway. It gives them a little bit of time. It gives to them some runway. Get, get them on a yeah, runway. Yeah. Yeah. And then. Uh, What's the third pillar? And the third pillar is that with that executive council, they, uh, they wanted uh, our students to have some competencies and skill sets in some areas that were very uh, important to them. You know, one is we're seeing, we're, they're gonna be on a fast track because we don't have enough supply chain. So those young people like Justin Everett are gonna go zick. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, they're gonna be running North America uh, and they're not even 30 yet. Right, yeah. And so leadership. And so uh, we work with the Humphrey Group out of Canada. They, one of the best leadership training programs in the country. And so while our students are still in university, they're getting to take two seminars from the Humphrey Group on how to lead. Cool. And we, we've had some technical, although the executive council has shifted that now to junior exec as opposed to undergrad students. And the reason is because we're end-to-end -end supply chain. So in the early days, we were very source and procurement specific. And so we were spending a lot of money on contract management and negotiation. Mm -hmm. And the problem is we went from 75% we're going to that, so that justified we could spend the money to now it's about 40%. 
And so a lot of our students aren't going into source and procurement. They don't need to negotiate. Mm. But we were spending a lot of money on people right. that were getting this certification but didn't actually need it. So right. we moved that now to helping junior execs who are in their first two to five years get that kind of technical competency. Right. And uh, we're going to focus on the soft skills on those undergrad students because they've got a lot on their plate. And so the third pillar is looking for ways to augment the competencies and skill sets because that's, right. you know, the executive councils, I, I want them to be superstars. I want them to ha know right. what they're doing and be developed so by the time they come to me, I've got a vested interest in them being yep. top-notch already. Top-notch already. And so, you know, I just salute smartly and say, yes, sir, yes, <laughs> ma'am, and uh, give them what they want. But, uh, you know, I was talking about the, the Gartner rankings, you know, 2000. 16, we get on the rankings, we're 23. Yep. Uh, 18, we go to 17. 20, we stay at 17. And then this pass, we go to nine. Yeah. What a, what a great, I mean, what a great success story, right? I mean, well, I wish I could take a claim yeah. credit, but industry, industry, my colleagues at the University of Houston who are the best, but you know what's interesting about those colleagues? Mm. Every last one of them from Michael Murray, uh, Gordon Smith, uh, Bradley Miller, uh, Radhakrishna, myself, all of them have substantial industry experience. Right. Well, I think that that's what differentiates you guys. And I, and I, I, I really do believe that you know, what you guys have built down at U of H is world class. And, and it, it is absolutely going to impact the, uh, the industry for years to come. And I think it's yeah, it takes a village, but at the same time, it, it takes everybody pulling the same direction. It takes a leader to get us there. So I think uh, you know, well, uh, well deserved credit for you and the entire team to get there. So I know we're kind of wrapping, we're getting to the end of the session. Hey, we're kind of wrapping things up. You know, I guess a couple of pontification questions for you then. Okay. Is you kind of as you look forward, let's say the next three and five years, what are the one or two things from a uh, from an academic perspective, what you plan on, you know, kind of looking at, engaging your student base on, you know, engaging with, with the executive committee. What are the top one or two things that either A, you see as real opportunities, or B, keep you awake at night as you, uh, as you look forward? Well, it's kind of a little bit of both. It's exciting opportunities, but it, it also can keep you awake at night. And so it's interesting, the Gartner rankings one of the key metrics, it's a new metric, okay. is um, global orientation. Okay. Do you understand how what you're doing may impact the supply chain across the globe? It just kind of ripple. Right. Decisions made at one point in the supply chain ripple. And we're seeing that Super today. relevant. Right? Yeah. I mean, how relevant? Yeah. And so, uh, but there's a little bit of a tension there mm -hmm. because we want our students to understand that we're an integrated whole and right now as we're organized our supply chains are decidedly global right but one of the deficiencies we uh, deficiencies we've seen and we're trying to inculcate this into our classes is the risk associated with global supply chains right and so we're seeing with disruptions how Many supply chains were built and organized with little or no focus on, is there any risk associated with having all of our production, all our manufacturing in China or Southeast Asia? 
or even yeah. just this one component that's critical. I mean, everything, what, not even oh, all the manufacturing. I, you know, resin. I can't what, get anywhere. What about natural gas for Germany today? Yeah. I mean, the, the, I mean, you that's a supply chain can't problem. Make anything. Yeah, exactly. You don't have any power. I mean, right. how many well, steel mills go down when you don't have any natural gas? All of them. What's, <laughs> all of them. what's <laughs> interesting is one of the principles I teach, almost ad nauseum, is I say if you have an assembly operation you're making a downhole tool let's say mm -hmm. and it's got you know 40 Wires different 40 different yeah. parts that go into it yeah. how many parts do you have to be missing to shut production down uh, all it takes is one one oh yeah, one. yeah. it could be an o-ring you've it could got be, it could be a to understand part, right? that one mm -hmm. part shuts you down yep I bet there's been more $1,000 bolts sold in the last year <laughs> than any time ever. Right. One part. And so we've got to understand that we've got to be perfect. we got to have – so when you got all your eggs in one basket, it's, it's a global supply chain. And, you know, where we're oftentimes running into problems is, you know, getting that in. You know, you talked about 98 days, Porta L.A. or Long Beach <laughs> or Long both. Beach, yeah. yeah, both. Both, and so, uh, you know, what happens with one of your component parts you can't get your hands on? Or they just shut down the factory that it's made yeah. in. I mean, that's yeah. They, so not you, just delays. We like were talking earlier no options. Yeah, about chips. Yep. Well, what happens to the auto industry when you can't get chips? Hey, uh, new car lots, even today, you drive by a new car lot, there's no cars in them. Yeah. I mean, they, they, are, they are struggling, and why? Because... Like you said, 20 years ago, the, the focus was first cost, very little risk assessment done. What happens if, and here we are. So, so how do we, so, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to, what are the implications here? So everybody, obviously near term and long term are gonna be different how people react to their supply chains, right? So you'll see dual sourcing or near shoring. We've, we've heard that that's happening, right? We're all seeing that you might see a weakening of uh, the just-in-time model. Maybe you know inventories come up. Mm -hmm. You does that? Do we now have price implications long-term because these things cost money? And how does the American consumer react to? Do, does that all have of more, a sudden cost more? Yeah. What, what uh, it's got? Some Man, you guys, you guys get it. You <laughs> live like we have a supply chain podcast. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we got a problem. Yeah, no, label. We, we got a problem. Yeah, People yeah. think that this has been solved, and I think you have waves coming. Oh yeah. Oh, may not be bad, but it's going to no. be different. No, in fact, I'm not sure that we haven't. You know, we're just on our way towards worse and worse because the problem is some of the solutions you talk about, you can't wave a magic wand and change it overnight. No. So we're going to have to live with some of the decisions we've made for another decade probably. Yep. Now, we can build some redundancy. You know, so the, you know, in my area, sourcing procurement, so we're working on, man, if we got to buy steel, can I buy steel from Mexico? should i should buy it from mexico <laughs> good place good place high quality well Great place to get because steel. if i'm building you. i know a guy if i'm if i'm looking for alloy steel to build that downhole tool we talked about uh it might be a little challenging to meet our demand our demand for downhole tools with our crews out there mm -hmm. because we can't get the steel we need the alloy steel we need from china mm -hmm. And uh, and so well, we're struggling, but 
what we want to do is build some redundancy. So when we talk about risk, well, the way you mitigate risk in a supply chain is build redundancy. Yep. So yeah. I've got to I've got to look. Okay, I got ninety eight percent is coming from China. Okay, what are our goals going to be over the next five years to take that from ninety eight down to thirty eight? Some some number that makes sense. Some right? number that makes sense, but uh, you know, and do we? Do we start, you know, one of the issues that I've seen in the steel market, since that's your area of expertise, is that when the pandemic hit, the American uh, steel companies shut down their foundries. Mm. And they're afraid to bring them back up because they're not quite sure, will we get tail whipped? Right. You know, we, we spend a boatload of money on getting them up and running. And then all of a sudden, the federal government says, Never mind. Go back to your cave. Wear your mask. Yeah. We got another pandemic. Yep. You know, it's monkeypox now. Yeah. And you're hundreds of millions of dollars spent to get these, the foundries back up and running just went yeah, in these the wind. These policy decisions have very real implications. I mean, we were talking about tariffs earlier today, right? I mean, if you're, yeah. if you're a steel company... You don't know how long these tariffs, because if I remember, 232 is an, is an annual deal, right? It so, is, yeah. I mean, it, it can potentially change at any time. And it so could. how do you make cap long-term capital investment decisions based on that? And, I, you know, it's, it's a very real weird place that we're at, which will be, I mean, th that also makes it a very fun place to be. I mean, we're going to learn a lot about, you know, what the options are, what the optionality looks like, how much flexibility supply chains have and who's willing to make big bets because there's probably going to be a lot of money made and lost during this experiment as well. But it's going to be supply chain professionals that need to have a seat at the table yep. to make informed decisions in that regard. I'll it, add one more. It has to be well-educated, experienced, and competent, highly competent. Highly competent. Even capable, exactly. some would say. There you go. But then that brings <laughs> you to my second thing that keeps me up at night. Ah which is we still are not producing enough supply chain major so you're you're all those adjectives you were going down yep. the line well we're not producing enough and so we end up having individuals that don't have those competencies those skill sets that mm -hmm. education and so what ends up happening is they make decisions based on what they know or don't know mm -hmm. And, uh, and ultimately, they, you know, companies at the CFO level and above, you know, we talked about cost minimization, mm -hmm. cost, come on, supply chain, I need hard dollar savings. Right. Well, we gave you hard dollar savings last year. I, I, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> you know, and so we're always, you know, hard dollar, hard, hard dollar savings. And we don't understand that we might be, um, we might be pound-wise, or dollar-wise and pound-foolish. That's right. why it all moved to China in the first yes, place. That's, that's, why we, that's, why it, that's why we're here, and right. now we need to make s some investments, bring in some yeah. of it back here, or, you know, uh, having a, you know, helping to start a steel plant in Mexico or getting them mm -hmm. up, handling some of the grades we need right. and, yeah. uh, and whatever it is, and so... Um, you know, your first side, your first issue was, yep. you know, those we got to have these competencies, yep. but where are they going to come yeah, from? We need to yeah. we need to continue to bring professionals in, into this space that are going to be able to help us those, solve those problems. One more. other piece, you mm -hmm. bring the competent people in. Here's where I'm seeing the problem. 
those junior execs. We talked about mm -hmm. yep. the education, training, and development. Right. You have an asset. They're your most valuable assets. You've got to train them. Yep. You educate ETD, education, training, and development. You've got to make sure they're the Justin Everett's. They're going to the top, and they're ready to go. And many companies will basically, you know, when times are a little bit tough, yep. the first thing that goes is the education, training, and development right. budget. Yep. And in supply chain, that can have catastrophic implications. Well, then they'll offshore the supply chain people that were. Oh, yeah. And so I got uh, <laughs> yeah. someone who. I got a local uh, guy that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's going to buy, he's going to solve my steel problem. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very and then well, I was going to quickly comment on, you know, not, I could talk another hour about, you know, my stuff, but we, so we have a massive, this, this, great sucking sound coming back to the Western <laughs> Hemisphere. Oh, I right? love that. And, uh, you know, the, the people, like the steel companies, go, what's real, right? Uh -huh. Because everybody's reacting. Everybody wants insurance. But what's, what's five years from now? If I make this investment here, is this going right. to stick around? Or is this going to change with another administration? Yep. Or with another executive that comes in and says, we need to move this number down? You know, so it's a balancing act. You not only need the, the competency on the front end, but realizing, translating what's the, the reality for long term. And, and that's the up in the air part. Well, that's where I think we need to be careful about the pendulum swinging too radically either way. What happened okay. is cost minimization took us to China and Southeast Asia because we swung all the way. Yep. Mm -hmm. And it was it was a radical save me money. Right. Quote Mattress Mac. <laughs> and uh, I try to get him on here, by the yeah. way. Yeah, <laughs> and Come on, and Matt. then what? Now what we're talking interview. about? <laughs> what we're talking about is going backwards. Right. But I think what we need to do is have uh, kind Stop. of a kind of a quote Fox News fair and balanced. Right. You know, right. Uh, we got to be somewhere in the middle and not go from one extreme to the other, where all of a sudden now you get an executive in it's going, oh my God, yeah, yeah, we got plants all over you've raised the cost and whatnot and and now shoot Rust belt and too. what and right. what and yeah. what i see is you know i've been doing this for a long time is that business has a tendency to go from one extreme to the other right and we have a difficult time finding that balance happy mediums happy mediums well said well, that, I, I want to end on a positive note. Well, I guess the pendulum coming my way for a little bit, but I got <laughs> to catch it before it goes back. But right. um, yeah, what what do you see? Do you see any like paradigm shifts be, besides what we've talked about that are going to come out of this? Like, what what are be some short term implications that maybe you're teaching your students to watch out for, or how are you changing your curriculum for the near term? Well, I th I think the the key issue is bringing risk assessment back into the curriculum. You know, we have a tendency, especially in theoretical environments, to kind of assume everything works out because it's the mystical magical realm. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so there is I no think there, there is no geopolitical risk in a black box. <laughs> what, 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 what are you talking nice. about? Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, are you, what, are you, what are you talking about? And Russia so would never never invade, invade right. Ukraine. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's never gonna happen. That's that's a point oh three probability. Mm -hmm. And so the, the the point is is that we really have to uh, spend some time in each of our classes 
uh, on how do we do a competent risk assessment? How do we gauge risk levels? How do we how do we put that into our decision matrix so we can see, you know, if I, I go here, yes, it looks very attractive, but look at this risk here. You know, is there a way for me to mitigate this so, it, you know, I can still go that option, but I at least understand the risk, so I'm going to try to mitigate it on the front end mm -hmm. and be very proactive as opposed to let's go with that because that looks really attractive. Yep. And then I'll be reactive to it. When everything hits Yeah, when it blows up in my yeah. face. And so um, students, young people have a tendency to be very optimistic. And this is where having a case competition with Halliburton can be very enlightening. Right. Knock them down a peg or two. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you what the real world looks like, right. Sonny. <laughs> yeah. And uh, do you know what happened two years ago? Yeah. yeah. Let me tell you. Yeah, when, yeah, when I don't want to bring you to tears, so I'll be short with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, meteor hit my factory. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I would say that we really have to, we our decision-making has to be better. And that means with our young people, we need to do a better job of bringing uh, risk assessment into our decision processes and, uh, and what can we do to mitigate those. So I might be able to get my most attractive option, but on a proactive basis, I'm already starting to mitigate those risks. Right. As opposed to waiting for, well, maybe, do I want to spend the money? Uh, you know, because you may have to present that to an executive says, I need you to spend a little bit of money here because we're mitigating this risk. Right. And then the executive says, uh, I don't think that's a risk. Well, I'll speak for myself saying I'm, I'm really counting on you and your legion of students to solve this crisis. Thanks for putting those, that pressure on my yeah, We'll uh, my revisit shoulders. this in five years to we'll see, see how we did. Make sure everything's we smoothed did. out. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm <laughs> I'll hoping. I'll call Justin and let him know. Yeah, I'm hoping that you... Uh, your location in Mexico uh, proves to be very fortuitous from a standpoint of having uh, some of our domestic uh, manufacturing companies who need that steel yep. saying, hmm, let's, can we, instead of 10%, can we do up that 20%? I think that might be a smarter way to spend our money than. If not, I'll be teaching football in Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, on that note, I would personally like to thank you, Vic, for taking a little bit of time to, to chat with us. Apparently, we need to get a hold of this Mark McDaniel character. Yeah. I, I would I, recommend it highly. He is the godfather of the program. <laughs> and like I said, a, Mark a and I have known each other mm. since 2008. Yeah. Um, you know, I tried competing with him. Uh, I think he has uh, 11 grandkids. I have eight, and the ninth is due in December. Congratulations. But Congratulations. the problem is Mark had four daughters, and I only had three. And <laughs> in good conscience, I couldn't come to uh, the oldest overachiever had four, but uh, I, I, could, I, in good conscience, I couldn't force that on the that pattern on the uh, other two so looks like nine is going to be it and Boom. so but mark will he'll probably brag about his uh his grandkids Why to not? you i would it's fine, yeah. yeah so i think he's got 11 or 12 I, I i have a hard time keeping up with him well <laughs> just tell him that this wasn't extremely painful if you right. soften that blow for us that'll make it a little easier mark mark the, is uh, an he, he, i think uh keith knows uh, mark really well and so mark uh, loves to talk too 
and uh, he he's got more war stories than just about anyone I know. So, you guys are in for a treat. Well, this has and been a pleasure. So I was gonna so say far. it's been a tr- it's been a treat yeah. already. You made made our jobs easy. Absolutely. So. Thank you, Doctor Vic. Thanks, boss. If you have any questions, nominations, or suggestions, please reach out to us on the Highly Capable Podcast on LinkedIn or at podcast at gaultwayindustries.com. Thank you for listening.